Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Science and the Modern World, published in 1925 and written by Alfred North Whitehead. This book looks at science and philosophy in the early 1900s. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Firstly, I want to say a huge thank you to David S. Johnson for becoming a new patron on Patreon with a $5 monthly contribution. Your contribution is an amazing compliment and I'm glad the podcast is helping. Of course, I am also grateful to all existing patrons and anchor sponsors that continue to support the podcast with a financial monthly contribution. Whether it's $1 or $5, your support allows me to bring out more episodes to those who need them. It was fantastic to hear from so many listeners during the week. I'm glad that the podcast is helping you all. Thank you to Monica Sakora for your lovely message on Instagram. Thank you to Amy L for the mention in your Insta story during the week. Thank you to longtime listener and patron Chuck Lavazzi for reaching out through the website. Thank you to Twitter user at Roger Undefeated for the mention. If you find the podcast beneficial, and especially if I've missed your message or comment, please let me know by saying hello through the website so I can thank you personally. It would also be amazing if you could. Please leave a review and comment in iTunes or leave the show a rating in Spotify or your podcast player of choice. If you would like, you can say hello at boytosleep.com or on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Science and the Modern World LOL Lectures 1925. The present book embodies a study of some aspects of Western culture during the past three centuries, in so far as it has been influenced by the development of science. This study has been guided by the conviction that the mentality of an epoch springs from the view of the world which is in fact, dominant in the educated sections of the communities in question. There may be more than one such scheme, 
corresponding to cultural divisions, the various human interests which suggest cosmologies and also are influenced by them are science, aesthetics, ethics, religion. In every age, each of these topics suggests a view of the world. In so far as the same set of people are swayed by all, or more than one, of these interests, their effective outlook will be the joint production from these sources. But each age has a dominant preoccupation, and during the three centuries in question, the cosmology derived from science has been asserting itself at the expense of all the points of view, with their origins elsewhere. Men can be provincial in time, as well as in place. We may ask ourselves whether the scientific mentality of the modern world in the immediate past is not a successful example of such provincial limitation. Philosophy, in one of its functions, is the critic of cosmologies. It is its function to harmonize, refashion, and justify divergent intuitions as to the nature of things. It has to insist on the scrutiny of the ultimate ideas and on the retention of the whole of the evidence in shaping our cosmological scheme. Its business is to render explicit, and so far as may be, efficient, a process which otherwise is unconsciously performed without rational tests. Bearing this in mind, I have avoided the introduction of a variety of abstruse detail respecting scientific advance. What is wanted, and what I have striven after, is a sympathetic study of main ideas as seen from the inside. If my view of the function of philosophy is correct, it is the most effective of all the intellectual pursuits. It builds cathedrals before the workmen have moved a stone, and it destroys them before the elements have worn down their arches. It is the architect of the buildings of the spirit, and it is also their solvent. And the spiritual precedes the material. Philosophy works slowly. Thoughts lie dormant for ages. And then, almost suddenly, as it were, mankind finds that they have embodied themselves in institutions. This book, in the main, consists of a set of eight Lowell lectures delivered in the February of 1925. These lectures, with some slight expansion, and the subdivision of one lecture into chapters 7 and 8, are here printed and delivered. But some additional matter has been added so as to complete the thought of the book on a scale, which could not be included within that lecture course. Of this new matter, the second chapter, 
and mathematics as an element in the history of thought, was delivered as a lecture before the Mathematical Society of Brown University, Providence R.I., and the twelfth chapter, Religion and Science, formed an address delivered in the Phillips Brooks House at Harvard, and is to be published in the August member of the Atlantic Monthly of this year, 1925. The 10th and 11th chapters, Abstraction and God, are editions which now appear for the first time. But the book represents one train of thought, and the antecedent utilisation of some of its contents is a subsidiary point. There has been no occasion in the text to make detailed reference to Lloyd Morgan's emergent evolution or to Alexander's space, time and deity. It will be obvious to readers that I have found them very aggressive. I am especially indebted to Alexander's great work. The wide scope of the present book makes it impossible to acknowledge in detail the various sources of information or of ideas. The book is the product of thought and reading in the past years, which were not undertaken with any anticipation of utilisation for the present purpose. Accordingly, it would now be impossible for me to give reference to my sources for details, even if it were desirable to do so. But there is no need. The facts which are relied upon are simple and well known. On the philosophical side, any consideration of epistemology has been entirely excluded it would have been impossible to discuss that topic without upsetting the whole balance of the work. The key to the book is the sense of the overwhelming importance of a prevalent philosophy. My most grateful thanks are due to my colleague, Mr. Raphael Demos, for reading the proofs and for the suggestion of many improvements in expression. Science and the Modern World Chapter 1 The progress of civilization is not wholly a uniform drift towards better things. It may perhaps wear this aspect if we map it on a scale which is large enough. But such broad views obscure the details on which rest our whole understanding of the process. New epochs emerge with comparative suddenness. If we have regard to the scores of thousands of years, throughout which the complete history extends, secluded races suddenly take their places in the mainstream of events. Technological discoveries transform the mechanism of human life. A primitive art quickly flowers into full satisfaction of some aesthetic craving. Great religions in their crusading youth spread through the nations of the peace of heaven and the sword of the Lord. The 16th century of our era 
saw the disruption of Western Christianity and the rise of modern science. It was an age of ferment. Nothing was settled, though much was opened. New worlds and new ideas. In science, Copernicus and Vesalius may be chosen as representative figures. They typify the new cosmology and the scientific emphasis on direct observation. Giordano Bruno was the martyr, but the cause for which he suffered was not that of science, but that of free imaginative speculation. His death in the year 1600 ushered in the first century of modern science, in the strict sense of the term. In his execution, there was an unconscious symbolism, for the subsequent tone of scientific thought has contained distrust of his type of general speculativeness. The Reformation, for all its importance, may be considered as a domestic affair of the European races. Even the Christianity of the East viewed it with profound disengagement. Furthermore, such disruptions are no new phenomena in the history of Christianity or of other religions. When we project this great revolution upon the whole history of the Christian Church, we cannot look upon it as introducing a new principle into human life. For good or for evil, it was a great transformation of religion, but it was not the coming of religion. It did not itself claim to be so. Reformers maintained that they were only restoring what had been forgotten. It is quite otherwise with the rise of modern science. In every way, it contrasts with the contemporary religious movement. The Reformation was a popular uprising and for a century and a half drenched Europe in blood. The beginnings of the scientific movement were confined to a minority among the intellectual elite. In a generation which saw the Thirty Years' War and remembered Alva in the Netherlands, the worst that happened to men of science was that Galileo suffered an honourable detention and a mild reproof before dying peacefully in his bed. The way in which the persecution of Galileo has been remembered is a tribute to the quiet commencement of the most intimate change in outlook which the human race has yet encountered. Since a babe was born in a manger, it may be doubted whether so great a thing has happened with so little stir. The thesis which these lectures will illustrate is that this quiet growth of science has practically recolored our mentality, so that modes of thought which in former times were exceptional are now broadly spread through the educated world. This new colouring of ways of thought has been proceeding slowly for many ages in the European peoples. 
at last it issued in the rapid development of science, and has thereby strengthened itself by its most obvious application. The new mentality is more important even though the new science is the new technology. It has altered the metaphysical presuppositions and the imaginative contents of our minds so that now the old stimuli provoke a new response. Perhaps my metaphor of a new colour is too strong. What I mean is just that slightest change of tone, which yet makes all the difference. This is exactly illustrated by a sentence from a published letter of that adorable genius, William James. When he was finishing his great treatise on the principles of psychology, he wrote to his brother, Henry James, I have to forge every sentence in the teeth of irreducible and stubborn facts. This new tinge to modern minds is a vehement and passionate interest in the relation of general principles to irreducible and stubborn facts. All the world over and at all times there have been practical men absorbed in irreducible and stubborn facts. All the world over and at all times there have been men of philosophic temperament who have been absorbed in the weaving of general principles. It is this union of passionate interest in the detailed facts with equal devotion to abstract generalization, which forms the novelty in our present society. Previously, it had appeared sporadically and as if by chance. This balance of mind has now become part of the tradition which infects cultivated thought. It is the salt which keeps life sweet. The main business of universities is to transmit this tradition as widespread inheritance from generation to generation. Another contrast which singles out science from among the European movements of the 16th and 17th centuries is the universality. Modern science was born in Europe but its home is the whole world. In the last two centuries, there has been a long and confused impact of Western modes upon the civilization of Asia. The wise men of the East have been puzzling and are puzzling as to what may be the regulative secret of life which can be passed from West to East without the wanton destruction of their own inheritance, which they so rightly prize. More and more, it is becoming evident that what the West can most readily give to the East is its science and scientific outlook. This is transferable from country to country and from race to race, wherever there is a rational society. In this course of lectures, I shall not discuss the details of scientific discovery. My theme is the energizing of a state of mind in the modern world. 
its broad generalizations and its impact upon the spiritual forces. There are two ways of reading history, forwards and backwards. In the history of thought, we require both methods, a climate of opinion, to use the happy phrase of a 17th century writer, requires for its understanding the consideration of its antecedents and its issues. Accordingly, in this lecture, I shall consider some of the antecedents of our modern approach to the investigation of nature. In the first place, there can be no living science unless there is a widespread instinctive conviction in the existence of an order of things, and in particular, of an order of nature. I have used the word instinctively, advisedly. It does not matter what men say in words, so long as their activities are controlled by settled instincts. The words may ultimately destroy the instincts, but until this has occurred, words do not count. This remark is important in respect to the history of scientific thought, for we shall find that since the time of Hume, the fashionable scientific philosophy has been such as to deny the rationality of science. This conclusion lies upon the surface of Hume's philosophy. Take, for example, the following passage from the section 4 of his inquiry concerning human understanding. In a word, then, every effect is a distinct event from its cause. It could not, therefore, be discovered in the cause, and the first invention or conception of it must be entirely arbitrary. If the cause in itself discloses no information as to the effect, so that the first invention of it must be entirely arbitrary, it follows at once that science is impossible, except in the sense of establishing entirely arbitrary connections, which are not warranted by anything intrinsic to the natures either of causes or effects. Some variant of Hume's philosophy has generally prevailed among men of science, but scientific faith has risen to the occasion and has tacitly removed the philosophic mountain. In view of this strange contradiction in scientific thought, it is of first importance to consider the antecedents of a faith which is impervious to the demand for a consistent rationality. We have therefore to trace the rise of the instinctive faith that there is an order of nature which can be traced in every detailed occurrence. Of course, we all share in this faith, and we therefore believe that the reason for the faith is our apprehension of its truth. But the formation of a general idea, such as the idea of the order of nature, and the grasp of its importance, 
and the observation of its exemplification in a variety of occasions are by no means the necessary consequences of the truth of the idea in question. Familiar things happen, and mankind does not bother about them. It requires a very unusual mind to undertake the analysis of the obvious. Accordingly, I wish to consider the stages in which this analysis became explicit, and finally became unalterably impressed upon the educated minds of Western Europe. Obviously, the main recurrences of life are too insistent to escape, the notice of the least rational of humans, and even before the dawn of rationality, they have impressed themselves upon the instincts of animals. It is unnecessary to labour the point that in broad outline certain general states of nature recur, and that our very natures have adapted themselves to such repetitions. But there is a complementary fact which is equally true and equally obvious. Nothing ever really recurs in exact detail. No two days are identical, no two winters. What has gone has gone forever. Accordingly, the practical philosophy of mankind has been to expect the broad recurrences and to accept the details as emanating from the inscrutable womb of things, beyond the ken of rationality. Men expected the sun to rise, but the wind bloweth where I listeth. Certainly from the classical Greek civilization onwards, there have been men, and indeed groups of men, who have placed themselves beyond this acceptance of an ultimate irrationality. Such men have endeavoured to explain all phenomena as the outcome of an order of things which extends to every detail. And geniuses such as Aristotle or Archimedes or Roger Bacon must have been endowed with the full scientific mentality which instinctively holds that all things great and small are conceivable as exemplifications of general principles which reign throughout the natural order. But until the close of the Middle Ages, the general educated public did not feel that intimate conviction and that detailed interest in such an idea so as to lead to an unceasing supply of men with ability and opportunity adequate to maintain coordinated search for the discovery of these hypothetical principles. Either people were doubtful about the existence of such principles or were doubtful about any success in finding them or took no interest in thinking about them or were oblivious to their practical importance when found. For whatever reason, search was languid, even if we regard to the opportunities of a high civilization 
and the length of time concerned. Why did the pace suddenly quicken in the 16th and 17th centuries? At the close of the Middle Ages, a new mentality discloses itself. Invention stimulated thought. Thought quickened physical speculation. Greek manuscripts disclosed what the ancients had discovered. Finally, although in the year 1500, Europe knew less than Archimedes who died in the year 212 BC. Yet in the year 1700, Newton's Principia had been written and the world was well started on the modern epoch. There have been great civilizations in which the peculiar balance of mind required for science has only fitfully appeared and has produced the feeblest result. For example, the more we know of Chinese art, of Chinese literature, and of Chinese philosophy of life, the more we admire the heights to which that civilization attained. For thousands of years, there have been in China acute and learned men patiently devoting their lives to study. Having regard to the span of time and to the population concerned, China forms the largest volume of civilization which the world has seen. There is no reason to doubt the intrinsic capacity of individuals for the pursuit of science, and yet Chinese science is practically negligible. There is no reason to believe that China, if left to itself, would have ever produced any progress in science. The same may be said of India. Furthermore, if the Persians had enslaved the Greeks, there is no definite ground for belief that science would have flourished in Europe. The Romans showed no particular originality in that line. Even as it was, the Greeks, though they founded the movement, did not sustain it with the concentrated interest which modern Europe has shown. I am not alluding to the last few generations of the European peoples on both sides of the ocean. I mean the smaller Europe of the Reformation period, distracted as it was with wars and religious disputes. Consider the world of the Eastern Mediterranean from Sicily to Western Asia. During the period of about 1400 years from the death of Archimedes in 212 BC to the eruption of the Tartars, there were wars and revolutions and large changes of religion, but nothing much worse than the wars of the 16th and 17th centuries throughout Europe. There was a great and wealthy civilization pagan, Christian, Mahometan. In that period, a great deal was added to science, but on the whole, the progress was slow and wavering, and except in mathematics, the men of the Renaissance practically started 
the position which Archimedes had reached. There had been some progress in medicine and some progress in astronomy, but the total advance was very little compared to the marvellous success of the 17th century. For example, compare the progress of scientific knowledge from the year 1560, just before the births of Galileo and of Kepler, up to the year 1700, when Newton was in the height of his fame, with the progress in the ancient period already mentioned exactly ten times as long. Nevertheless, Greece was the mother of Europe, and it is to Greece that we must look in order to find the origin of our modern ideas. We all know that on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean, there was a flourishing school of Ionian philosophers, deeply interested in theories concerning nature. Their ideas have been transmitted to us, enriched by the genius of Plato and Aristotle. But with the exception of Aristotle, and it is a large exception, this school of thought had not attained to the complete scientific mentality. In some ways it was better. The Greek genius was philosophical, lucid and logical. The men of this group were primarily asking philosophical questions. What is the substratum of nature? Is it fire or earth or water? or some combination of any two, or of all three? Or is it a mere flux, not reducible to some static material? Mathematics interested them mightily. They invented its generally, analysed its premises, and made notable discoveries on theorems by a rigid adherence to deductive reasoning, their minds were infected with an eager generality. They demanded clear, bold ideas and strict reasoning from them. All this was excellent. It was genius. It was ideal preparatory work. But it was not science as we understand it. The patience of minute observation was not so nearly prominent. Their genius was not so apt for the state of imaginative, muddled suspense, which precedes successful inductive generalization. They were lucid thinkers and bold reasoners. Of course, there were exceptions, and at the very top, for example, Aristotle and Archimedes, also for patient observation, there were the astronomers. There was a mathematical lucidity about the stars and a fascination about the small innumerable band of runaway planets. Every philosophy is tinged with the colouring of some secret imaginative background which never emerges explicitly into the trains of reasoning. The Greek view of nature at least that cosmology, 
transmitted from them to later ages was essentially dramatic. It is not necessarily wrong for this reason, but it was overwhelmingly dramatic. It is thus conceived, nature is articulated in the way of a work of dramatic art, for the exemplification of general ideas, converging to an end. Nature was differentiated so as to provide its proper end for each thing. There was the centre of the universe as the end of motion for those which are heavy, and the celestial spheres as the end of motion for those things whose natures led them upwards. The celestial spheres were for things which are impassable and ingenerable. The lower regions for things impassable and generable. Nature was a drama in which each thing played its part. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story and I hope you're feeling a little bit drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, feel free to listen to another episode. In the meantime, I'll be working on a new reading to bring out just for you. Good night.